Section 14 of Essays and Reviews by Charles Hodge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Finney's Lectures on Theology, Part 2. The two principles to which all the important doctrines contained in this work may be traced are, first, that obligation is limited by ability, and secondly, that enjoyment, satisfaction, or happiness is the only ultimate good which is to be chosen for its own sake. If these principles are correct, then it follows, first, that moral obligation or the demands of the moral law can relate to nothing but intention or the choice of an ultimate end. If that is right, all is right. The law can demand nothing more. That this is a fair sequence from the above principles is plain, as appears from the following statement of the case. The law can demand nothing but what is within the power of a moral agent. The power of such an agent extends no further than to the acts of the will. All the acts of the will are either choices of an end or volitions designed to attain that end. The latter, of course, having no moral character, except as they derive it from the nature of the end in view of the mind. Therefore, all moral character attaches properly to the intention or ultimate choice which the agent forms. This is one of the conclusions which Mr. Finney draws from the principles above stated, and which is perhaps more frequently and confidently asserted than any other in his book. Quote, it is generally agreed that moral obligation respects strictly only the ultimate intention or choice of an end for its own sake. Page 26. I have said that moral obligation respects the ultimate intention only. I am now prepared to say still further that this is a first truth of reason. Page 36. All the law is fulfilled in one word, love. Now this cannot be true if the spirit of the law does not respect intentions only. If it extends directly to thoughts, emotions, and outward actions, it cannot be truly said that love is the fulfilling of the law. This love must be goodwill, for how could involuntary love be obligatory? Page 31. Let it be remembered that moral obligation respects the choice of an ultimate end. Page 90. Right and wrong respect ultimate intention only, and are always the same. Right can be predicated only of goodwill, and wrong only of selfishness. It is right for him to intend the highest good of being as an end. If he honestly does this, he cannot, doing this, mistake his duty, for in doing this he really performs his whole duty. Page 149. Moral character belongs solely to the ultimate intention of the mind, or to choice, as distinguished from volitions. Page 157. Let it be borne in mind that, if moral obligation respects strictly the ultimate intention only, it follows that ultimate intention alone is right or wrong in itself, and all other things are right or wrong as they proceed from a right or wrong ultimate intention. End quote. Page 134. How strangely does this sound like the doctrine, the end sanctifies the means. Everything depends on the intention. If that is right, all is right. We fear Mr. Finney has not recently read Pascal's Provincial Letters, a better book for distribution at Oberlin we should be at a loss to select. When Pascal innocently begs his instructor in the mysteries of the new morality to explain to him how it was possible to reconcile with the gospel many things which the Jesuits allowed, the Venerable Father answered, Understand, then, that this wonderful principle consists in directing the intention the importance of which in our system of morality is such that I should almost venture to compare it with the doctrine of probability. You have, already in passing, seen some features of it. 
in a few of the maxims already mentioned, for when I showed you how servants might with a safe conscience manage certain troublesome messages, did you not observe that it was simply taking off the intention from the sin itself and fixing it on the advantage to be gained? This is what we term directing the intention. You saw at the same time that those who gave money to obtain benefices would be really guilty of simony without giving some such turn to the transaction. But that you may judge of other cases, let me now exhibit this grand expedient in all its glory in reference to the subject of murder, which it justifies in a thousand cases. I already perceive, replied Pascal, that in this way one may do anything without exception. You always go from one extreme to another, returned the father. Pray stop your impetuosity. To convince you that we do not permit everything, take this as a proof that we never suffer the formal intention of sinning for the sake of sinning, and whoever persists in having no other design in his wickedness than wickedness itself, we instantly discard. When we cannot prevent the action, we at least aim to purify the intention. Do you understand me now? Oh yes, perfectly well, says Pascal, you allow men the external material action and give to God the internal spiritual intention, and by this equitable division you aim to harmonize divine and human laws. To prove that he correctly stated the principles of his society, the father appeals first to Reginaldus, who says, a warrior may instantly pursue a wounded enemy, not indeed with the intention of rendering evil for evil, but to maintain his own honor. This is not exactly the direction of the intention Mr. Finney would prescribe, but we are only illustrating the principle. Again, Lessius says, He who receives a blow must not indulge a spirit of revenge, but he may cherish a wish to avoid disgrace, and for this purpose repel the assault even with sword. If your enemy be disposed to injure you, says Escobar, you ought not to wish for his death through hatred, but you may to avoid injury. Hurtado de Mendoza says, when a gentleman who is challenged to fight a duel is known not to be remarkably pious, but daily commits sins without the least scruple, plainly evincing that his refusal to accept the challenge does not proceed from the fear of God, but from timidity, he may be called a chicken and not a man. He may, in order to preserve his honour, proceed to the appointed place, not indeed with the express intention of fighting, but only of defending himself if his enemy should attack him. Sanchez goes still farther, for... He not only allows a man to accept, but to give a challenge, if he directs his intention aright, and Escobar agrees with him in this. It is allowable, says Molina, to kill false witnesses brought against us. According to our celebrated Father Lorney, it is lawful for priests and monks to kill others to prevent their design of injuriously calumniating them. A priest or monk is allowed to kill the calumniator who threatens to publish scandalous crimes of their society, or themselves, if there exists no other means of prevention, as when just ready to propagate his malignities, if not instantly killed. For in such a case, as it would be lawful for a monk to kill a person who was desirous of taking away his life, so it is to kill him who wishes to take away his honour, or that of his fraternity, in the same manner as it is for the people of the world in general. From these examples, the doctrine of the Jesuits is very plain, Moral character pertains to the intention alone, and all other things are right or wrong as they proceed from a right or wrong intention. This is the doctrine by which they sapped the foundations of morals and social order, and which procured, more than any other cause, their indignant rejection from the civilized world. How does Mr. Finney's doctrine differ from theirs? 
On page 134, he says, in the passages just quoted, Let it be borne in mind, it is a matter at once plain and important, that, if moral obligation respects strictly the ultimate intention only, it follows that ultimate intention alone is right or wrong in itself, and all other things are right or wrong as they proceed from a right or wrong ultimate intention. The only difference here arises from the insertion of the word ultimate. But we cannot see that this makes any real difference in the doctrine itself. Both parties, i.e. the Jesuits and Mr. Finney, agree that the intention must be right, and if that is right, everything which proceeds from it is right. The former say that the honour and welfare of the church is the proper object of intention. Mr. Finney says the highest good of being is the only proper object. The latter, however, may include the former, and the Jesuit may well say that in intending the welfare of the church, he intends the glory of God and the highest good of the universe. In any event, the whole poison of the doctrine lies in the principle common to both, viz. that whatever proceeds from a right intention is right. If this is so, then the end sanctifies the means, and it is right to do evil, that good may come, which is Paul's reductio ad absurdum. An objection so obvious and so fatal to his system could not escape Mr. Finney's sagacity. He frequently notices it and pronounces it self-contradictory and absurd. On page 124 he says, quote, It is nonsense to object that if enjoyment or mental satisfaction be the only ground of moral obligation, we should be indifferent as to the means. This objection assumes that in seeking an end for its intrinsic value, we must be indifferent as to the way in which we obtain that end, that is, whether it be obtained in a manner possible or impossible, right or wrong. It overlooks the fact that from the laws of our own being, it is impossible for us to will the end without willing also the indispensable and therefore appropriate means, and also that we cannot possibly regard any other conditions or means of the happiness of moral agents as possible, and therefore as appropriate and right, but holiness and universal conformity to the law of our being. As we said in the former lecture, enjoyment or mental satisfaction results from having the different demands of our being met. One demand of the reason and conscience of a moral agent is that happiness should be conditionated on holiness. It is therefore naturally impossible for a moral agent to be satisfied with the happiness or enjoyment of moral agents except on the condition of their holiness. End quote. The objection is that if moral character attaches only to intention, then it follows that, if the intention is right, all the proceeds from it must be right, and consequently that the end sanctifies the means, no matter what those means in themselves may be. Mr. Finney's answer to the objection is, one, that it is nonsense, two, that it cannot bear against his doctrine because he teaches that enjoyment or happiness is the only proper object of intention. 3. That it is a law of reason that virtue is the condition of happiness. 4. And therefore, as it is impossible that a man should will the end without willing the means, it is impossible for him to will enjoyment without willing virtue, which his reason tells him is its indispensable condition. On this answer, which is substantially repeated in several parts of the work, we remark, 1. That it overlooks his own fundamental principle, viz. that nothing is virtue but intending the highest good. There is no moral excellence in truth, justice, holiness, except so far as they are forms of that intention. Anything, therefore, which is a form or expression of that intention, or, as he says himself, that proceeds from it, is virtue. If, therefore, killing a man proceeds from that intention, it is a virtuous act. 2. Mr. Finney cannot say certain things are prohibited by the law of God, and are therefore wrong no matter with what intention they are performed, because his doctrine is that the law relates only to the intention. 
its authority extends no further. The will of God is not the foundation of any obligation. He here has got into a deeper slough even than the Jesuits, for they hold that the law of God is not a mere declaration of what is obligatory, and so far as we know, they never substitute obedience to the intelligence as a synonymous expression with obedience to God. 3. Nor will it avail to say that if a man's intention is right, he cannot err as to the appropriate means of attaining it, because those means are infallibly revealed in the reason. For this is notoriously not the fact. The intelligence makes known only to a very limited extent the means appropriate to secure the highest good. Hence, this is a point on which men differ as much as on any other that could well be mentioned. 4. It is a favourite doctrine of Mr. Finney, and a necessary consequence of the maxim, that obligation is limited by ability, that a man's responsibility is limited by the degree of knowledge or light which he possesses. Does it not then follow that, if he has been perverted by education, or brought honestly to believe that persecution, private assassination, or any other abomination is an appropriate means to the greatest good, he is virtuous in employing those means? If the horrors of the French Revolution were perpetrated with a right intention, with a purpose to promote happiness, they were lofty specimens of virtue, and Robespierre, Marat, and Danton must be enrolled as saints. Mr. Finney himself says, No moral being can possibly blame or charge himself with any default when he is conscious of honestly willing or choosing or acting according to the best light he has, for in this case he obeys the law as he understands it, and of course cannot conceive himself to be condemned by the law. Page 162. He does not seem to have any conception of that lowest state of moral degradation of which the prophet speaks when he says of the wicked, they put good for evil and evil for good, sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet, or when a man is brought to the pass of saying, evil be thou my good. On the page last quoted he asserts that conscious honesty of intention, according to the light possessed, is entire obedience to moral law, and on page 165, quote, If the intention is what it ought to be, for the time being nothing can be morally wrong. End quote. This, as far as we can see, is the precise doctrine of the Jesuits. It is the doctrine which led to the justification of the murder of Henry IV of France, of the massacre of the Huguenots, and of thousands of similar enormities. We mean no disrespect when we say it would be well for Mr. Finney to read the works of the Jesuit fathers. Let him see what his principles come to in the hands of wicked men who are his equals in logical acumen and boldness, and know nothing of the restraints which his moral and religious feelings impose on him. We consider this a fair refutation. If the principle that obligation is limited by ability leads to the conclusion that moral character is confined to intention, and that again to the conclusion that where the intention is right nothing can be morally wrong, then the principle is false. Even if we could not detect its fallacy, we should know it could not be true. But we have already said the fallacy lies in applying a principle which is true in reference to physical incapability, such as want of sight, to an inability which, though natural in one sense, is as to its character moral, i.e. arises out of a moral state of the soul. A fallacy just as gross as it would be to argue that because two portions of matter cannot occupy at one time the same portion of space, therefore two thoughts cannot coexist in the same mind. A second doctrine which flows from Mr. Finney's principles, and which characterizes his whole system, concerns the foundation of moral obligation. We have seen that he holds that obligation is limited to intention, 
But on what does that obligation rest? Why is a man bound to intend one thing rather than another? Mr. Finney answers this question by denying, first, that the will of God is the foundation of this obligation. Against this doctrine he urges such reasons as the following. 1. Quote, this theory makes God's willing, commanding, the foundation of the obligation to choice or intent an ultimate end. If this is so, then the willing of God is the end to be intended, for the end to be intended and the reason of the obligation are identical. End quote. 2. God himself is under moral obligation, and therefore there is some reason independent of his own will which imposes upon him the obligation to will as he does. 3. If the will of God is the foundation of obligation, he can, by willing it, change virtue into vice. 4. If the will of God is the foundation of moral obligation, we have no standard by which to judge of the moral character of his acts. 5. The will of no being can be law. Moral law is an idea of the reason. Mr. Finney's book is made up of half-truths. It is true that the will of God, divorced from his infinite wisdom and excellence, mere arbitrary will, is not the foundation of moral obligation. But the preceptive will of God is but the revelation of his nature, the expression of what that nature is, sees to be right, and approves. It is also true that some things are right because God wills or commands them, and that he wills other things because they are right. Some of his precepts, therefore, are founded on his own immutable nature, others on the peculiar relations of man, and others again upon his simple command. We can have no higher evidence that a thing is right than the command of God, and his command creates an obligation to obedience, whether we can see the reason of the precept or not, or whether it have any reason apart from his good pleasure. Mr. Finney is right, so far as saying that the will of God, considered as irrational, groundless volition, is not the ultimate foundation of moral obligation, but his will as the revelation of the infinitely perfect nature of God is not merely the rule but ground of obligation to his creatures, so that their obedience does not terminate on the universe, nor on reason in the abstract, but upon God, the personal reason, the infinitely perfect, and because he is the infinitely perfect. Second, our author denies that the divine moral excellence is the ground of moral obligation. This he pronounces to be absurd. Moral obligation respects the choice of an ultimate end. The reason of the obligation and the end chosen must be identical. Therefore, what is chosen as an end must be chosen for its own sake. But virtue, being chosen as a means to an end, viz. enjoyment, cannot be the end chosen. This, of course, follows from the principle that enjoyment is the only intrinsic good, the only thing that should be chosen for its own sake, and other things only as they are the means or conditions of attaining that end. We should like to ask, however, how Mr. Finney knows that happiness is a good, and a good in itself to be chosen for its own sake. If he should answer that as a first truth of reason, is it not a first truth of reason that moral excellence is a good, and a far higher good to be chosen for its own sake? It is degraded and denied if it be chosen simply as a means of enjoyment. If the idea of moral excellence is not a primary independent one, then we have no moral nature, we have a sentient and rational nature, a capacity for enjoyment and the power of perceiving and adapting means to its attainment. We may be wise or foolish, but the ideas of wrong as wrong and right as right are lost. 
they are merged into those of wise and unwise. If God and reason affirm obligation, they affirm that virtue and vice are not terms to express the relations of certain things to enjoyment. They affirm that the one is a good in itself and the other an evil in itself, and this is the loudest affirmation of the human soul, and woe to the man in whom it ceases to be heard. No sophistry can render the conscience permanently insensible to the authority of God, asserting that virtue is to be chosen for its own sake, and that it is not chosen at all unless it be so chosen. Let this not be supposed to conflict with the assertion that the will of God is also the ground of obligation. For what is the will of God? What is God but the sum of all excellence, almighty self-conscious reason and holiness? In choosing virtue for its own sake, we choose God. It is one of Mr. Finney's hobbies that the ground of obligation must be one and simple. If it is the will of God, it is not his moral excellence. If his moral excellence, it is not his will. This, however, may be safely referred to the common judgment of men. They are conscious that even entirely distinct grounds of obligation may concur, as the nature of the thing commanded, the authority of him who gives the command, and the tendency of what is enjoined. If these are considerations which affect the reason, they bind the conscience. They are the bond or ligament which binds a moral agent to the moral law. Third, Mr. Finney's own theory of the foundation of moral obligation is of course involved in his principle that enjoyment is the only intrinsic good. The fourth lecture is devoted to the consideration of this subject. In that lecture, after arguing to prove that the highest well-being of God and the universe is the ultimate and absolute good, and that their highest good must be natural good or happiness, and not moral good or virtue, he comes to the conclusion that the intrinsic value of happiness is the sole foundation of the obligation to will it as the ultimate end. The conclusions from this doctrine, as stated on page 148, are, 1, quote, Upon this theory, moral obligation respects the choice of an ultimate end. 2. This end is an unit. 3. It is necessarily known to every moral agent. 4. The choice of this end is the whole of virtue. 5. It is impossible to sin while this end is intended with all the heart and all the soul. 6. Upon this theory, every moral agent knows in every possible instance what is right, and can never mistake his real duty. 7. This ultimate intention is right, and nothing else is right more or less. 8. Right and wrong respect ultimate intention only, and are always the same. Right can be predicated only of goodwill, and wrong only of selfishness. Quote. We briefly remark on this theory that it changes the whole nature of religion. Our whole and sole obligation is to the universe, and to God only as one of the constituent members of universal being. There is and can be no allegiance to God as God, and hence Mr. Finney substitutes perpetually obedience to the intelligence, to an idea of the reason, as synonymous with obedience to God, or the moral law. In his whole system, and of necessity, God is subordinate to the universe. Again, it is of the essence of religion that love to God should include congeniality, complacency, reverence, and delight in his divine perfections. In other words, that his moral excellence should be loved and chosen for its own sake. Mr. Finney's system will not allow him to attach any other meaning to love than goodwill, i.e. willing good or happiness to anyone. Love of God, therefore, can, according to his doctrine, be nothing more than willing his happiness, 
and this obligation is entirely independent of his moral excellence. He admits that his moral goodness is the condition of our willing his actual happiness, but it is not the ground of our obligation to love him, or to will his good. As far as our feelings are concerned, there ought to be no difference between God and Satan. We are bound to will the happiness of each according to their intrinsic value, goodwill being the whole of virtue, and goodwill having no respect to the moral character of its object. There is no more virtue in loving God, willing his good, than in loving Satan. Footnote. In answer to the objection that we are under obligation, quote, to love God because he is good, and that this affirmation has no reference to the good of God, end quote, he answers, quote, such an affirmation, if it is made, is most nonsensical. What is it to love God? Why, as is agreed, it is not to exercise a mere emotion of complacency in him. It is to will something to him, end quote, which of course is happiness, page 64. Should it be said that God's holiness is the foundation of our obligation to love him, I ask in what sense it can be so, it cannot be a mere emotion of complacency, for emotions, being involuntary states of mind, and mere phenomena of the sensibility are without the pale of legislation and morality. Page 91. The moral perfections of God do not even increase our obligation to love him. Quote, we are under infinite obligation to love God and will his good with all our power because of the intrinsic value of his well-being, whether he is sinful or holy. Upon condition that he is holy, we are under obligation to will his actual blessedness, but certainly we are under obligation to will it with no more than all our heart and soul and mind and strength. But this we are required to do because of the intrinsic value of his blessedness, whatever his character may be." End quote page 99. End footnote. No one, of course, denies that benevolence is a virtue, but the slavery to system, to the miserable logic of the understanding, consists in asserting that it is the only virtue, that love to Christ does not differ in its nature from benevolence to the devil, nor the love of the brotherhood from benevolence to the wicked. Footnote. Hence Mr. Finney says, the command is, thou shalt love thy neighbour as thyself. This says nothing about the character of my neighbour, it is the value of his interests, of his well-being, that the law requires me to regard. It does not require me to love my righteous neighbour merely, or to love my righteous neighbour better than I do my wicked neighbour. Page 95. End footnote. As the essential nature of religion is changed perverted and destroyed by this theory, so also, of course, is the nature of sin. But this may be more appropriately noticed under the following head. A third doctrine which flows from the two radical principles of this book is that there is no moral character in the feelings or affections. This, indeed, is necessarily involved in what has already been said, but it is in itself so important and so characteristic a part of the system that it deserves a more distinct exhibition. If obligation is limited by ability, and therefore confined to acts of the will, and if the affections are neither acts of the will nor under its immediate control, it follows, of course, that we cannot be responsible for them. They lie without the pale of legislation and morality. Again, if enjoyment is only intrinsic good, then all virtue consists in benevolence, or in willing the happiness of sentient beings, and consequently there is no virtue in any state of the affections. So the same conclusion is reached in two different ways. The consequence of his principles, Mr. Finney presents on almost every page of his book. 
moral obligation, he says, cannot directly extend to any, quote, states of the sensibility. I have already remarked that we are conscious that our feelings are not voluntary but involuntary states of the mind. Moral obligation, therefore, cannot directly extend to them, end quote, page 35. They have no more of a moral nature than outward actions. A man is responsible for his outward acts only as they are determined by the will, and in like manner he is responsible for his feelings only as they are produced or cherished by the will, or rather as the will yields to them. The whole of sin consists in allowing the will to be determined by them. In the feelings themselves there is nothing good or bad. Quote, if any outward action or state of the feeling exists in opposition to the intention or choice of the mind, it cannot by possibility have moral character. Whatever is beyond the control of a moral agent he cannot be responsible for. End quote, page 164. And therefore, quote, if from exhaustion or any cause beyond our control the emotion does not arise from the consideration of the subject which is calculated to produce it, we are no more responsible for the weakness or absence of the emotion than we should be for the want or weakness of motion in our muscles when we willed to move them. End quote. Page 165. Of course, all self-condemnation for coldness or hardness of heart or want of right affections towards God rests on a false philosophy, that is, arises from overlooking that in which moral character consists. Quote, Love may and often does exist, as everyone knows, in the form of a mere feeling or emotion. This emotion or feeling, as we are aware, is purely an involuntary state of the mind, because it is a phenomenon of the sensibility, and of course a passive state of mind, it has in itself no moral character. End quote. Page 213. Gratitude as a mere feeling or phenomenon of the sensibility has no moral character. Page 278. The same thing is said of benevolence, compassion, mercy, conscientiousness, etc., etc. The doctrine is, quote, that no state of the sensibility has any moral character in itself. End quote. Page 521. On this subject, we would remark, one, that there is a form of truth in this, as in most other parts of this system, but a half-truth when presented as the whole, and especially when accompanied with the denial of the other elements which enter into the proposition, becomes a dangerous error. It is true that character depends more upon fixed purposes and principles than it does on feelings. It is also true that the tenor of a man's life, as evincing his governing principles, is a better test of his character than mere emotions. But then, what determines these fixed purposes of the soul? Unless they are determined by moral and religious considerations, they are not themselves either moral or religious. Unless our fixed determination to obey God, to devote ourselves to the promotion of His glory, flows from a due appreciation of His excellence and from a sense of our obligations to Him, it is not a religious purpose. And unless our determination that it shall be Christ for us to live arises from an apprehension of the glory of His person and of our relation to Him as the purchase of His blood, it is not a Christian purpose. It may be philanthropic or benevolent, but it is neither religious nor Christian. But, two, the Scriptures, our own consciousness, and the universal judgment of men recognize those affections which terminate on moral objects as having a moral character, and therefore any theory which denies this must be false. The love of God is essentially the love of the divine perfections, complacency and delight in Him as the infinitely good, which leads to adoration and obedience. 
It can hardly be denied that this is the constant representation of the Bible, and especially of its devotional parts. The psalmist speaks of himself as longing after God as a heart pants for the cooling waters. Whom have I in heaven, he exclaims, but thee, and there is none on earth I desire besides thee. All this Mr. Finney pronounces delusion or selfishness. Quote, when a moral agent, he says, is intensely contemplating moral excellence and his intellectual approbation is emphatically pronounced, the natural and often the necessary result is a corresponding feeling of complacency and delight in the sensibility. But this, being altogether an involuntary state of the mind, has no moral character. End quote. Page 224. Indeed, it is perhaps the general usage now to call this phenomenon of the sensibility love, and for want of just discrimination to speak of it as constituting religion. Many seem to suppose that this feeling of delight in and fondness for God is the love required by the moral law. Page 224. It is remarkable to what extent religion is regarded as a phenomenon of the sensibility and as consisting in feeling. Page 225. Nothing is of greater importance than forever to understand that religion is a phenomenon of the will, page 227. The legitimate and sufficient answer to all this is that it contradicts the common consciousness of men. They know it cannot be true. If Mr. Finney says it is a first truth of reason that it is right to will the highest good, which we admit, we say it is a first truth of reason that compassion, benevolence, love of God, conscientiousness, gratitude, devotion, reverence, humility, repentance, as states of feeling, have a moral character. He is forced to admit that this is the common judgment, and recognized in what he calls the popular language of the Bible. A philosophy which leads to a denial of this plain fact of consciousness, this first truth of reason, is a false philosophy. It is obvious that a theory which reduces all virtue and religion to a simple act of the will must lead to the same view as to the nature of sin. If virtue has no place in the affections, neither can sin have. If all religion is centred in one intention, all sin must be confined to another. If all virtue is benevolence, all sin is selfishness. But as benevolence is not an affection but a purpose, so selfishness must be an intention. It cannot consist, the author tells us, in malevolence. Quote, it cannot consist in any state of the intelligence or sensibility, for these, as we have seen, are involuntary and depend on acts of the will. End quote, page 286. It must consist in the choice of self-gratification as an end. Or, sin consists in being governed by the sensibility instead of being governed by the law of God, as it lies revealed in the reason, page 287. This is a frequently recurring definition. Quote, Benevolence is yielding the will up unreservedly to the demands of the intelligence. End quote. Page 275. As the will must either follow the law of reason or the impulses of the sensibility, it follows that moral agents are shut up to the necessity of being selfish or benevolent. Page 290. Men naturally desire their own happiness and the happiness of others. This is constitutional. But when, in obedience to these desires, they will their own or others' happiness, they seek to gratify their sensibility or desires. This is selfishness. Page 290. Of course, it makes no manner of difference what the nature of the feeling is that determines the will. The sin does not lie in the nature of the feeling, but in the will's being determined by any feeling. 
quote, it matters not what kind of desire it is, if it is desire that governs the will, this is selfishness, end quote, page 301. Footnote, the sinner may, quote, feel deeply malicious and revengeful feelings towards God, but sin does not consist in these feelings or necessarily imply them, end quote, page 296. It may be a desire of our own salvation, the desire of holiness, of the salvation of others, of the good of the world, of the glory of God, of the triumphs of the Lord Jesus. It matters not. It is just as selfish and as wicked to have the will determined by such desires as by avarice, envy, or malice. Quote, the choice of anything, because it is desired, is selfishness and sin. End quote, page 305. Quote, some writers have fallen into the strange mistake of making virtue to consist in the gratification of certain desires, because, as they say, those desires are virtuous. They make some of the desires selfish and some benevolent. To yield the will to the control of the selfish propensities is sin. To yield the will to the control of the benevolent desires, such as the desire of my neighbor's happiness and the public happiness, is virtue, because these are good desires, while the selfish desires are evil. Now this has been a very common view of virtue and vice, but it is fundamentally erroneous. None of the constitutional desires are good or evil in themselves. They are all alike involuntary and terminate on their correlated objects. To yield the will to the control of any one of them, no matter which, is sin. End quote. Page 503. Mr. Finney is beautifully consistent in all this and in the consequences which of necessity flow from his doctrine. He admits that if a man pays his debts from a sense of justice or feeling of conscientiousness, he is therein and therefore just as wicked as if he stole a horse. Footnote. Quote, he may be prevented committing commercial injustice by a constitutional or phrenological conscientiousness or sense of justice, but this is only a feeling of the sensibility, and if restrained only by this, he is just as absolutely selfish as if he had stolen a horse in obedience to acquisitiveness. End quote. Page 317. End footnote. Or, if a man preaches the gospel from a desire to glorify God and benefit his fellow men, he is just as wicked for so doing as a pirate. Footnote. Quote, if the selfish man were to preach the gospel, it would be only because, upon the whole, it was most pleasing or gratifying to himself, and not at all for the sake of the good of being as an end. If he should become a pirate, it would be for exactly the same reason. Whichever course he takes, he takes it for precisely the same reason, and with the same degree of light, it must involve the same degree of guilt. End quote. Page 355. We may safely challenge Hurtado de Mendoza, Sanchez or Molina to beat that. It passes our comprehension to discover why the will being determined by the desire to honour God is selfishness and sin, while its being determined by the desire of the highest good is virtue. It is as much determined by desire in the one case as in the other. Mr. Finney says indeed that in the one case it is determined by the intelligence and in the other by the sensibility, but reason as much dictates that we should honour God as that we should seek the happiness of the universe, and the will is as much decided by the intelligence in the one case as in the other. The only way in which the intelligence can determine the will is that the truth which the intelligence contemplates, 
whether it be the value of the well-being of the universe or the excellence of God, awakens the corresponding desire or feeling of right, fitness or obligation, and that determines the will. If the will is not determined by a desire to secure the happiness of the universe, what benevolence is there in such a determination? Mr. Finney's principles lead him to assert that there is no difference in their feelings between the renewed and the unrenewed, the sinner and the saint. Quote, the sensibility of the sinner, he says, is susceptible to every kind and degree of feeling that is possible to saints. End quote. Page 521. He accordingly goes on to show that sinners may desire sanctification, delight in the truth, abhor sin, have complacency in good men, entertain feelings of love and gratitude to God, and in short, be, as to feeling and conduct, exactly what saints are. The only essential difference is in the will, in their ultimate purpose or intention. The sinner's ultimate intention may be to promote the glory of God from a sense of duty, or from appreciation of the loveliness of moral excellence, but he be no better than a pirate. If his ultimate end is to promote happiness because happiness is intrinsically valuable, he is a saint. Footnote. Quote, Whether he, the unrenewed man, preach and pray, or rob and plunder upon the high seas, he does it only for one end, that is, for precisely the same reason, viz. to gratify some feeling. And, of course, his sinfulness is complete in the sense that it can only be varied by varying light. This, I know, is contrary to the common opinion, but it is the truth and must be known, and it is of the highest importance that these fundamental truths of morality and of immorality should be held up to the minds of all, End quote. Page 355. On the same page we are taught that if a man abstains from anything because it is wicked, it is selfish because the will is determined by phrenological conscientiousness. End footnote. A fourth doctrine flowing from Mr. Finney's fundamental principles is that every man must at any given moment be either totally depraved, i.e. as wicked as it is possible for him with his knowledge to be, or perfectly holy, this is a conclusion which, it would appear, he finds some difficulty in persuading his friends to adopt. They receive the premises, they admit the validity of many other sequences from them, but this is rather more than they are prepared for. Mr. Finney is right, and he knows it. He has them in his power, and he commands them to follow wherever he and the intelligence lead. If the intelligence deceives us here, we can never know truth from error. If obligation is limited by ability, if ability extends only to acts of the will, if the acts of the will are confined to the choice of ends and means, and if the choice of means has no moral character, but from the nature of the end chosen, it follows that all morality is confined to the choice of an end. If the right end is chosen, the agent discharges his whole duty. He fulfills the single command of law and reason, if he chooses the wrong end, he commits all the sin of which he is capable, the only respect in which one moral agent can be either better or worse than another is as one has more ability than another. A child has not the knowledge or strength of a man, nor a man of an angel. It is not required, therefore, of the child to have so high an estimate of the value of the good of being as a man should have, nor of a man that he should have the comprehensive and consequent strength of intention of an angel. If ability limits obligation, all that can be required is that a moral agent should will the highest good with an intensity proportioned to his honest conviction of its value, that is, with conscious honesty of intention. 
This is all an angel can do, and it is perfection in him. It is all a converted pirate can do, and it is perfection in him. Again, if happiness or enjoyment be the only real good, to intend the highest enjoyment of sentient beings is the whole of virtue, to intend our own gratification is the whole of sin. It is impossible that these intentions should coexist in the mind. If a man intends the one, he does not intend the other. If all morality centres in this ultimate intention, he must therefore at any moment be perfectly sinful or perfectly holy. This is a severe dose of logic, but Mr. Finney will not tolerate even a wry face in swallowing it. Quote, the new or regenerate heart cannot sin. It is benevolence, love to God and man. This cannot sin. These are both ultimate choices or intentions. They are, from their own nature, efficient, each excluding the other, and each securing for the time being the exclusive use of means to promote its end. To deny this is the same absurdity as to maintain either that the will can at the same time choose two opposite ends, or that it can choose one end only, but at the same time choose the means to accomplish another end not yet chosen. Now either alternative is absurd. Then holiness and sin can never coexist in the same mind. Each, as has been said, for the time being necessarily excludes the other. Selfishness and benevolence coexist in the same mind. A greater absurdity and a more gross contradiction was never conceived or expressed. End quote. Page 310. This is sound logic, and therefore we must either admit that every man is either perfectly holy or entirely sinful at any given time, or we must deny that moral obligation is confined to intention, and if we deny that we must of course admit that feelings or states of the sensibility may have a moral character, and if we concede that point we must concede that obligation is not limited by ability, and then the great Diana of the Ephesians has fallen." This doctrine of the simplicity or unity of moral character is very prominently presented in this work. In Lecture 11, the main proposition contended for is, quote, moral character is wholly right or wholly wrong, and never partly right and partly wrong at the same time, end quote, page 156. In Lecture 28, he says, quote, this conducts us to the conclusion or truth to be demonstrated, namely, that moral agents are at all times either as holy or as sinful as with their knowledge they can be. End quote. Page 354. We have little space to devote to remarks on this subject, and surely little need be said. The doctrine, of course, rests on a false apprehension of the nature of sin and holiness, and of the grounds and extent of our obligations. Our own conscience and the Bible teach us that we are bound to be completely conformed to the law or image of God, that in whatever respect or degree we fall short of that standard of excellence we sin, and that the law of God exhibits what rational beings ought to be, not what they can be, nor what they have plenary power at any moment to make themselves, but what they would be, and would at all times have power to be, were it not for their sinfulness. No man, according to the standard of conscience and of the Bible, is perfect, who is not perfectly like Christ, or has not attained to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ who has not the same love, reverence, humility, patience, long-suffering, mercy that were in him. It shocks the moral sense of men to say that a pirate, with all his darkness of mind as to God, and divine things, with all his callousness, with all the moral habits of a life of crime, becomes perfectly holy by a change of will, by forming a new intention, by mere honesty of purpose. 
If the demands of God thus rapidly sink with the increasing depravity of men, as has often been remarked, the shortest road to perfection is the most debasing course of crime. 2. Need any reader of the Bible be reminded that the consciousness of sin, of present corruption and unworthiness, is one of the most uniform features of the experience of God's people as they are recorded? 3. Or is there any one point in which Christian experience in all ages of the church is more strongly pronounced than in this sense of sin and consequently humiliation under it? In opposition to the common consciousness of men, to the plainest teachings of the scriptures, and to the experience of the people of God, we are called upon to believe that honest intention is the whole of duty and religion. If we have that, we are perfect. If this is a false doctrine, no one can fail to see what its effects must be. If a man thinks himself perfect, if he says, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knows not that he is wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, his situation is most deplorable. Mr. Finney is well aware that his doctrine changes the whole nature of religion, and hence his frequent denunciations of the false philosophy and pretended orthodoxy by which religion has been perverted and the church corrupted. And certain it is that religion, as represented by him, is something exceedingly different from what good people in all ages have commonly regarded it. We should have to provide a new language, new hymns, new prayers, and especially a new Bible. It is useless, however, to continue these remarks. If a man can believe that every human being is either perfectly sinful or perfectly holy, he can believe anything. And a theory that leads to this conclusion is thereby exploded, and its fragments are not worth looking after. Of course, Mr. Finney teaches that full or perfect obedience to the moral law is the condition of salvation, now and ever. There is not a passage in the Bible, he says, which intimates that men are saved or justified, quote, upon conditions short of personal holiness or a return to full obedience to the moral law, end quote, page 366. Any man, therefore, conscious of coming short of perfection, has sure evidence that he is not justified. Quote, as the moral law is the law of nature, it is absurd to suppose that entire obedience to it should not be the unalterable condition of salvation. End quote. Page 364. Regeneration, therefore, is declared to be quote, an instantaneous change from entire sinfulness to entire holiness. End quote. Page 500. This work has interested us principally on two accounts. First, as an illustration of the abject slavery to which the understanding, when divorced from the Bible and from the other constituents of our nature, reduces those who submit themselves to its authority. One should think that history furnished examples enough of the consequences of following such a guide to deter others from repeating the experiment. Secondly, Mr. Finney's book is the best refutation that can well be given of the popular theology current in many parts of our country. How long have we been accustomed to hear that inability is incompatible with obligation, and that happiness is the highest good? Grant Mr. Finney these principles, and he need ask you no further favours. You must follow him to all his conclusions. He has had the strength and the boldness to carry them out to their legitimate consequences, and here they are. You must either take them, or give up the principles whence they flow. We heartily thank our author for having brought matters to this alternative. End of section 14.